Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yo, technology, what is it all about? There are going to be unforeseen challenges. As hashtag we, production hell. Hashtag production hell. Yeah. As we start to put together um, the initial production run of the vehicles. And so I don't know what awaits us. So that keeps me up. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, Danny Fortz, in the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times, and this week we're talking about electric cars. So, as previously covered on this pod, the world is awash in electric vehicle startups. There are literally hundreds of them, and each of them are promising that they are going to be the ones that change the world. They are going to be the ones to kind of emerge from the scrum. And of course, most won't make it. It's a tough, tough business. But last week, I met one company that's very interesting and it's based in Britain. They've raised a boatload of money, more than a billion dollars. They went public last year and they've pioneered an entirely new way to make cars. So it's a big swing. It's very audacious. And the name of the company is Arrival. And they were in San Francisco, earlier this month to show off their new ride-hailing prototype, which kind of looks like a more futuristic black cab for our British listeners or for our American friends, kind of like a new-age minivan. Anyhow, I got to check it out. I also got to see their version of their kind of Mercedes Sprinter delivery van uh, as well, which looks, well, a lot like a Sprinter van, except it's electric and has a very big touchscreen. And after, I sat down with their president, Avinash Rugabor, to talk about just the very difficult business of building an EV company from scratch and doing it these days in a just horrendous bear market. You know, their stock is down more than 90%. They're burning through large piles of cash every month. And it's all kind of coming to a head this summer as they start production for the first time since starting the company back in 2015. So very high stakes. They employ almost 3,000 people. There's a lot on the line. And one other interesting fact, the company was actually started by Denis Sverdlov. He's a Russian telecoms billionaire who briefly, back in the day, almost a decade ago, worked for the Russian government for a bit as the mass media deputy minister. So there's been some MPs recently questioning Sverdlov's links to Putin, given the times we're in. Arrival said that Sverdlov has no personal ties or relationship to Putin and that all the production is done in Britain and America. And basically, this is all a big 
red herring, but you may hear some more rumblings about that going forward. But what you're about to hear now is from Avinash Rugabor on just this Herculean task of creating an electric car startup from whole cloth and how before he did this, he ran a chocolate factory. It's a true story. Um, anyway, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. So I'm going to hand it over now to my conversation with Avinash Rugabor, president of Arrival. Enjoy. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Can you just tell me who you are and where we are and what we're doing? Yeah, so I'm uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I'm Avinash Rugabar. I'm the president of Arrival. Uh, so we're a EV technology company. We're based out of uh, Charlotte in the US and also in the UK. We've got offices around the world, 2,700 people. And I think, you know, in, in, in summary, what we're doing is we're creating uh, affordable electric commercial vehicles. But uh, to do that, we've actually pioneered a u- unique new method. So we are you know, what I call extremely vertically integrated. We've created a new production system as well. Mm. So taking the 100-year-plus conveyor belt manufacturing line that everybody uses, and instead of starting with that, we actually ask the question, do we still need to produce vehicles like that? Uh, So instead, we are using a a modern uh, technology to apply to the production system as well as the vehicle themselves. Mm. So we've invented uh, the microfactory, and uh, we have two factories coming online this year. We have one in Bicester in the UK and one in Charlotte in the US. Actually, our bus just recently got certified, and we recently passed our crash test on our van, and we also have the car here as well in the US that we are doing a first sort of tour of the US with. But uh, yeah, we do everything in-house. So we design our own components. Uh, these are all the electromechanical systems in the vehicle. We've invented a new composite material that we use for all of our body panels, which is lighter and more durable than steel. Don't need a paint shop. Don't need metal stamping yeah. plant. Really incredible tech. And we write all the software ourselves as well. So a ton of technology to create vehicles this way. Uh, but it produces more affordable, better lasting, and better TCO vehicles. So... I have lots of questions because we've, I've met a lot of um, EV companies and I re, I'll always remember interviewing somebody at Nikola yep. and he was like, this is a once in a century opportunity. He's like, and they were in Ohio or something and he's like, there's a street in Ohio where all these like giant mansions are and this is all the like the legacy money of the first kind of automobile revolution because there's a bunch of parts makers there, companies, et cetera. He's like, we're in a similar moment now. And then, like, two months later, Hindenburg Research comes out and says this whole <laughs> yeah. company is a fraud. They should go down by 95%. And there's been a lot of issues now with a lot of these very, very hyped companies now crashing into reality of, like, making a cars and making a car company is really hard. Yeah, it is. So why are you guys different? Why are you guys going to be ones that emerge? Does it go back to the idea of the micro factory and, you know, how big a difference is that in terms of the approach, cost, scalability, et cetera. I mean, that's, it's a hugely differentiating factor, but sort of to, just to address the point that you made, and I'm not going to speak about you know, what other companies have or haven't done. I, I focus purely on what we need to do. You know, so we were founded in 2015, actually. We've been very sort of stealth under the radar. Yeah, I was saying earlier, I was like, when Rana reached out, she's like, yeah, we've raised like a billion dollars. And I was like, what? Never heard of you guys. <laughs> totally. Exactly. Yeah. That was like my exact thought. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, that was by design because we were 
breaking through technology barriers, I would say, that were required to do what we wanted to do with the micro factories and the vehicles themselves. And, you know, but during that time, I think it's just, just to go back in history a little bit, we started off this adventure by questioning the production system. And so that then led to a whole, <laughs> I would say, a bunch of unknowns. Like, okay, so we, we know that a, micro, a regular factory uses a paint shop, metal stamping plant as an example, and that's really expensive, not environmentally safe, et cetera. What do we do to remove that? And so we designed the organization around uh, the idea of simplicity, but to engineer simplicity, you know, you can't just say to an engineer, okay, make something simple. Simplicity is complex. It's extremely complicated, Yeah. right? Um, and so we design our systems in a way that we are focused on what we need to do to achieve the microfactory and affordability in the vehicle. So we don't just do components for the sake of doing components. We do it because we can control how the assembly process works for that. We can control the code. We can get the data off it. We can control their geometric dimensions, which is critically important in when you do the assembly process. Composites was the same. It removes the paint shop, removes the metal stamping plant, but it adds durability to the system, recyclability, 100% recyclable. So when we started that journey in 2015, we were purposely silent. You know, we were just working through all of that. We now have 2,700 people. Uh, prior to going public, we had an investment from Hyundai Kia and UPS. Uh, UPS, who have been a long-term partner with us, uh, helping us design the van that you see. And we've also got partnerships with folks like Microsoft and Uber for the car. And all of that was sort of done quite silently, I would say. Mm -hmm. And now over the last uh, 12 months, eight, 14 months since we've gone public, we are now at the point where you know, we've just certified the bus. Uh, we're almost there on the van and we have our, our micro factories starting up in Q3. So the progress has been you know, really immense. It's very difficult to your point. It's extremely difficult. But what differentiates us is that layer of technologies that we have. We, have, we don't just design the vehicles. We design the systems that create vehicles. And we have... IP and layers of technology, technology platforms like inside the micro factory, rewrite that software that allows us to commission plants using the same software. And we can just at the press of a button commission plants all around the world. You know, yeah. the fact that they use off the shelf robots means that you don't have this three to five year delay before you start production. We can start it rapidly. You can put it in a warehouse. Our vehicles, for example, the components, we share them across everything. So the bus, the van, the car, they all use the same components. Allows us to be more rapid through the engineering design process. So the differentiators are under the hood. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. Um, it's not about the vehicle. The vehicle has the right attributes because we design for that. But what really differentiates us is the ecosystem we've built, all the technologies and the software layer that allows us to bring those together rapidly, whether it's in the way we produce the vehicles or the vehicles themselves. And that is, at least as far as I'm aware, the key differentiator between Arrival and uh, the other players out there. And do you have a sense of, I mean, and I probably already know the answer, but like thinking about the internal combustion engine and how it's dominated basically for 100 years. Yeah. And we now have one electric vehicle and it is an, it's like a different machine. Yeah, correct. It's a yeah. different experience. Yeah. And in many ways, just better. Yeah. Do you have any sense of how quickly this shift, both, you know, arrival being part of that, but more broadly, just the shift that's going to happen from petrol, diesel engines to electric? Yeah, I love that question because the shift has already happened. What you're seeing now is a lag between mm -hmm. what products are out there. But if you look at data points like the new car searches, for example, in the retail environment, 
the searches are already basically biased towards electric vehicles. So I think it was like 70% of new searches are electric vehicles. Right. So the mind shift has already happened. Governments have already shifted, right? We know governments around the world are looking for zero emission vehicles. Corporations in our world, in the commercial vehicle world, they've either announced publicly yeah. or they're driving investment towards this shift. It's actually happened. So Rivals has over 143,000 LOIs for orders. That was basically pre-orders. They're pre-orders, yeah. yeah. So it's um, non-binding. Yeah. And But what it shows is that the demand is already there. So to me, when I think about what's happening in the broader sense, people already recognize it's a better product. It's cheaper to run. In our case, in Rivals' case, we want to make it as affordable as you know ICE competitors. But because it's a better vehicle, everyone who has experience with it, it's very difficult to go back, right? And so to your point, what has happened over the last you know, 20, 30 years is most of the traditional OEMs have focused all of their sort of core IP around the powertrain, right? engine, gearbox, et cetera. That's changed now. And with that change has come this very unique opportunity, which is generational. It is really once in a lifetime where the skills required have shifted from the sort of typical mechanical engineering type skills that we needed into more of the mechatronics, electronics engineering, software development. Of course, mechanical is still critically important. I'm not going to um, minimize that, but it's added another layer of technology and skills that are required. But it's also simplified the vehicle. We've gone from hundred thousands of parts when you include the petrol engine to thousands of parts when you're yeah. looking at an electric vehicle. And it's allowed the new players to come in. But what's important is a big barrier to entry has still been the production system. So if you look at many of the new entrants, you either acquire a factory or yeah. you go partner with someone who has the factory. Yeah. So the, the capital barrier is still there. Yeah, it's like Tesla bought exactly. the old Nissan plant, which was like the key for it. And it's still almost died every year for 15 years. Because it's really tough and really complicated. Yeah. Production's yeah. hard. And then yeah. for Arrival, you know, we changed that. We said, okay, we're going to have a factory that costs us, you know, 50-odd million to start up, 10,000 vans a year. If you just do the math, then you get to 100,000 vehicles. It's half a billion dollars. Yeah. So it's more capital efficient, and it's also decentralized. But it also means you can start to do some really interesting things with the business, actually. You can scale capacity as you see the trends change and merge, right? Because the industry with its long lag between the product we want and the product we actually get, you know, sometimes three to five years, means that the cycles can catch you out. You know, so if you're going to respond to something, even if you can predict it, you know, you've got a long lead time before you get the vehicle out. And with our model, you know, over time, we expect to be extremely rapid in the ability to bring out vehicles. Well, it's really funny because when I hear micro factory, that sounds bad to me. Because factory means big, means, <laughs> means economies of scale. Yep. Micro factory sounds like small and more expensive. That's no, the opposite. It's small lower capex, lower opex, and more efficient. But there is a key here though, right? You still get the economies of scale because you share the components across everything. Right. You still get the economies of scale because the composites, for example, same raw materials, you're using them everywhere. You're taking the benefits where they make the most sense and then you're adding flexibility and agility to the system. Now, why do we believe that producing vehicles at 200, 300,000 is the way to go? Because we've always done it that way. And then we ship those vehicles all around the world. Yeah. Right. With a micro factory, what we're saying is back to the simplicity that we were discussing earlier, we constrain the type of parts that get released from our engineering teams to be allowed to be assembled by a micro factory. And what it means is you engineer simplicity. 
into the vehicle. So you cannot take an existing vehicle on the road today and build in a microfactory. It's impossible. But you can take a newly designed vehicle, thought of around the economics of a microfactory, and build that vehicle. Um, and that's what led us to these innovations. But if we just double click on the microfactory, you know, we're talking about 50 odd million in CapEx, 10,000 vans a year. We have a factory floor that is radically more simple. You know, we're talking about hundreds of employees on the floor instead of thousands. Just think about that even on an operational standpoint, how you feed them, how you provide for the employees, for example. Everything becomes more simple uh, because it's a, it's a smaller team. And so you're getting the benefits of that, but you're not losing the benefits of scale. And that's in twofold. That's in the shared components, but it's also in how do you increase capacity? Because with a microfactory, you can take an existing warehouse, 200, 300,000 square feet, and turn it into a production facility within six to 12 months. Because you're basically using the same off-the-shelf robots in every factory. The vehicle's designed to be built in that factory. We write the code so we can commission that factory from anywhere, and you can push go on it. Right. So that means you can also say, okay, I can go from 10,000 vehicles a year to 200,000 vehicles a year if I put 20 microfactories down, and I can do those in parallel. And you can really scale it how you best see you should scale it. Right, right. And then you add new products to that. Well, it's funny. Listening to you talk makes me think of another company I just met. They're called Kana. I don't know if you've heard no, of them. No, I haven't. They have nothing to do with cars. What they made is a molecular beverage printer. So it's like a desktop that thing. Cool. It is. It is actually pretty cool. But basically, it's a countertop kitchen appliance that's about the size of a microwave. What they figured out is that pretty much every drink is some combination of 40 or 50 different compounds. And then 99% water. It's that 1% that makes the drink a drink. And so they, this one machine can print like hundreds of different drinks, like whiskey, coffee, juice, etc. But the problem they were trying to solve is that there's 2 trillion bottles and cans that are mostly water shipped around the world and wasteful, etc. And they're like, well, why don't we just kind of make a little factory in everybody's house? Exact same concept. Right. We use Nespresso, actually, as an example. Like <laughs> The microfactory is the Nespresso machine. Yeah, yeah. The components and composites, it's all the technologies, the capsule, yeah. put the two together and you get the product, which is coffee. Yeah. In our case, it's, a, it's an EV, but you decentralize it. But you know what's really unique? And, and we don't often talk about where we're going to go because we're so focused on what we're doing today. But the potential of the microfactory is a production facility in each city, exactly to the mm. point that you just mentioned about a small factory in everybody's house. A microfactory in each city and the, the economics of that factory, which means that you can pay that factory back in you know, around a year and a half, two years, really rapidly because of the investment cost is so low. Now, all of a sudden, you've got all the technologies that are available and you've got, you know the facility can build any combination of those technologies. Well, now, why is it a van? It could be anything you want. What suits your city? So over time, you can essentially extend the type of vehicles that you're producing in that where arrival isn't looking at, you know, right now we're doing sort of like a replacement strategy. There's a bus, we replace it with an electric yeah. bus. There's a van, we replace an electric van. I sort of used the example of an iPad. When it first came out and we have books on it, we replicated it, even the page turn, even though it's a digital screen. Yeah. We didn't add the, the video and the sound and everything that's got. And so that's sort of stage one. Stage two, though, is integrating all of these the actual benefits of it into the product itself. And then, you know, cities all around the world, 
you know, if you're in Johannesburg versus, you know, where we're sitting here in San Francisco, why do products look the same? Cities are completely different. Yeah. It's because the production system means it has to be the same. But if you've changed that, now all of a sudden I can engineer for my use case. Extend that on even further. Why is a microfactory limited to just a vehicle? You essentially have a production facility in your backyard. What else can you add to it? Yeah. And it really does start to really change the game. And for cities and governments, it's great because obviously it's a clean product coming out. It's a zero emission vehicle, but it's local jobs, local taxes, local production. So it's win-win on that side. Yeah. Can we just talk about paint Yeah. real quick? Because we had another company on, this was like early when we were doing this podcast. We've been doing this now for five years. It was like first year. It was, they were, I think they were called at the time E-Velocity and they've now changed their name to the name escapes me now. But they're again doing a kind of a rideshare new concept from scratch, et cetera. And it was run by a guy from who spent his career at BMW. And he's like, Oh, we've got some great ideas about paint. Paint is such a thing. And I never really just kind of we never really went back to that, but it does it's not something people think about. It's yeah. just like making a car is hard. Who cares about the paint? But it sounds like paint is a big thing. And I was just looking at your cars and this idea that you can kind of make this kind of mold that does not require paint, no paint feels like that's a big deal. I completely agree with you. Um, so let's talk about paint. We don't we don't want to use paint. <laughs> um, <laughs> but essentially, have you been to a factory and seen the, the paint I have. shop? Yeah, it's yeah. wild, right? I mean, it is amazing to watch, like how they yeah. dip the vehicle in. And the, yeah, I've know, seen. I've been to the actual the Tesla factory. Okay, yeah. So yeah. you've seen it all. Yeah. So. You've seen how complex that is, mm-hmm. um, but you also need the environmental permits. It's really expensive. Paint in the commercial vehicle segment is a pain because if I get any little scratch, and most accidents occur you know, under 20 miles an hour, so it's like little, little dings and stuff. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, as a commercial vehicle company, I have to go spend money to either respray this thing or it's, it's actually annoying. So what we've done is the composite material, polypropylene glass fiber, we can actually embed the color into the panel itself. Mm. And we do that by using technology that you'd find in, in the textiles industry. Mm. Like dyeing it, basically. Yeah, well, just like my T-shirt isn't painted. It's, yeah, it yeah, is yeah. a color, but it's, yeah, not, yeah. it's not painted. Similar concept to that. The fabric is a color. And then it's imbued into the color. And we, um, we're able to get an A-class finish, which is all about how the light refracts off the surface. But it can simulate paint. It gives you that glossy look, but it isn't paint. It's inside the actual panel. Like you can scratch it all you want. (laughs) That is the color. And that's great for commercial vehicle segment because any of those little accidents, you're not, you know, you don't have to replace the panel. So for example, this vehicle we're doing with Uber, you're saving on the total cost of ownership because the maintenance costs are lower. Right. But also those composite materials, they're not like metal. They have given it. And so when there is a accident, the panel can actually just bounce back out and right. not, not actually get dented. So again, you're just designing it for that use case. Similar to the factory right now for commercial vehicles, we just take the same technologies we apply to road cars and we slap it together in a van and say, okay, here you go. Here's the van. And oh, and we can't do anything really special for you because we need to make 200,000 of it to generate any profit. So here you go. Here it is. Right. And now we're going electric. Well, I'm not going to change my architecture. That costs too much. I'm just going to take the engine out and replace it with batteries. And now you've got the whole front section of the vehicle with batteries instead of designing around the use case. So we saw that as an opportunity you know, five, six years ago that commercial vehicle segment is just underserved. Mm. The products that these folks need aren't being engineered and they're not being mass produced. So it gave us a unique opportunity to apply these technologies to that first. Of course, over time, we will expand out. But right now, that segment is really 
requiring a very rapid shift. So if you think of a purchase decision of yourself or myself when we go buy a car, if we have one, we can maybe hold off on that decision. We can yeah. sort of look out and see what we want to do. And we're not, I like to think we're all altruistic, but we're not all driven by the need to flip it to being a more environmentally friendly vehicle. But commercial vehicle segment is, and in many cases being mandated yeah. that they have to shift. But if you look out right now, there's not enough products for it. And so, you know, it's a very unique opportunity for Arrival as we start production this year to really, and you're seeing in the, in the in amount of uh, LOIs we have, but the demand is outstripping capacity. Right. But also the vehicles aren't purpose-built. So we sort of hit a really sweet spot between where you put the microfactory, how you partner with folks like UPS to design a purpose-built vehicle for them, the lower operating costs, as we mentioned, with the composites and no need for paints. But we also can upgrade the hardware at end of life. So all the components, it's a plug-and-play architecture like you would find in a desktop computer. Right, Which right, right. seems obvious, but if you actually look at how vehicles are, it's not obvious at all. Basically, when you buy a vehicle now, that's it. I mean, Tesla's changing that with over-the-air updates. We're taking it another step further in our segment with hardware updates as well. You know, 5G moves to 6G, we upgrade it. Uh, battery technology changes, we upgrade it and so on and so forth. So it increases the residual value at end of life. Right. Got a more affordable vehicle to begin with and you have better operating costs. So I mean, that's, that's the trifecta you're trying to optimize. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How did you end up doing this? What's your story? <laughs> so, so my, my story is... <laughs> Where's, uh, can I, is your accent as you from Australia? Yes, I, I was yeah. born in the UK, studied in Australia, also lived out in the Valley. So I've, I've been around a bit. So I, I studied mechatronics and computer science. Started at GM actually as part of the innovation group. Back when? Back oh, early 2000, 2001, 2002. Okay. Been here a while now, a couple of decades. At GM at the time, what were you doing? So we had an innovation group out in Australia, what, actually. What did that look like? Oh, that was cool. I mean, but back then it was all V8s and stuff. Well, right? that's so what I was going to say. The world like, has changed a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely a car guy, but I see that, like we said, we're getting better vehicles now anyway. But yeah, it was all... Um, Optimizing the internal combustion engine. No, so it was actually... I, I, I was actually lucky that I started. I did spend some time on the line and sort of rotated around. But uh, I started in a group that was all around thinking about where's the industry going. Mm. But back then, we didn't necessarily question the powertrain. Uh, we were looking at optimizing it, like you said, like SIDI and technologies like that. We did dabble a little bit in electrification, but it was more on the human-machine interface and works like, work like that. And then from there, I, um, I, uh, <laughs> I started a chocolate company. Um, Boy, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, <laughs> with a few friends you, you and I. Can't glide, you, can't, you can't just like <laughs> glide over that. So yeah, you, I just... I, you, you started know, a chocolate company. I've always been an entrepreneur. So I started a chocolate company in India, actually, randomly. My background's from a tiny island called Mauritius. I moved with oh, a few yeah, friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you know about it? Yeah, 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 yeah. a lot of Americans don't know about yeah, it. That's yeah, cool. Yeah. So went over there with a few friends, couldn't speak the language, four of us, family, friends, money. And we started uh, India's first sort of premium chocolate lounge. That took a off. Chocolate lounge. Yeah, chocolate lounge. Like premium Wh chocolate. Where? Place to take a date in Bangalore. 
Um, that recently actually got acquired, but uh, I sort of moved out of it 2007 or 8, right, 9, right, something right, like that. Right. But we started it. We had a, I had a chocolate factory. <laughs> we, had these, <laughs> we had these two chocolate lounges. We grew it to about 14, 15 lounges. And then oh, wow. it's still going. It's going really well. What's it called? Uh, it was called Bliss when we started it. Yeah. We name changed to Small. So if you're ever there, let me know. S'more. We'll, I'll hook you up with some chocolate. No, that sounds amazing. So um, wait, so just so I understand what a chocolate lounge is. Is it like chocolate cocktails or are you just like, it's no, like you're like chocolate cocktails, premium chocolate pieces, milkshakes, waffles. Like, you know, we, I, I recognize that at the time in India, you had this growing middle class and no place to really take a date or go somewhere like yeah, yeah, unique yeah. and chill. So we just went and created it. <laughs> we just went and did it. it was, That's really funny. It was wild, you know, and, and, you know, I learned a lot about operations back then. Like we didn't hire our staff in time. I was waiting table, running the company, waiting tables, closing house, getting ready for the next day. Like just because we operationally is a nightmare, even cold chain logistics. Did you have like a special chocolate procurement or co- where'd you get your cocoa? Or Yeah, you we got it from, um, from Switzerland and Belgium actually. So I did a little chocolate tour and hooked up with some suppliers and we were getting Calibo chocolate, like real premium chocolate at the time, bringing it into, into India. And I didn't notice at the time, but there's a culinary Olympics and so we hired a chef who was like a gold medalist in chocolate and got him over and he, he did our menus. I haven't talked about this wow. in a while, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, and then, yeah, that was, that was a learning experience for sure. It was amazing. It was really, really complicated, but it was it sounds something like I've never done before. And that's a lot of customer service too. That sounds, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That sounds not fun. Yeah, it was, it was tough, <laughs> but it was fun. And then I moved back. I was back in Australia and I started a digital health company. Sydney? Melbourne. Right, Melbourne. Right. Digital health, health company that's still going, actually, in, based in Melbourne. So we would take medical research. That was at the advent of digital health, before digital health was even a term. Mm. I just recognized that me and a few friends recognized like our devices aren't used at all for healthcare. Yeah. So we started this company 10 years ago, still going, still going strong partners with the Children Research Institute there and turns uh, medical research into into devices and apps for parents and doctors and oh, the wow. children. Right. And then I got a call from an old friend of mine at GM and said, hey, we're running an advanced technology out in Silicon Valley. Do you want to uh, come and lead that? And I was like, well, that sounds cool. Because, you know, when you're, <laughs> when you're not from the Valley and you're outside yeah, and, you, yeah, and you're yeah, a tech yeah. guy and you're, the Valley is like yeah. Mecca, right? Yeah, so yeah. you're just like, that's... That's that's the place. So yeah. I ended up moving to the valley. Um, Which was when? It's about 10 years ago. Right. More, just a bit over. So you were back at GM. I was back at GM. But the world about, had changed. world basically. had changed. I was the new GM. I was still allowed to keep my startups, um, which was part of this sort of new new thinking. And then I met Cruise and um, actually led the acquisition of Cruise for GM, the self-driving division. Yeah. And then I joined Cruise, leading their strategy and M&A team. And then I met the founder of Arrival and I think that's like the watershed moment because I'd seen everything that the industry was building to all done in one company. And I'll never forget, you know, the first time I I met the founder, Dennis, and I came to visit him and the team. The team was amazing. Like the culture is just, I keep saying it. It's like, you know, we can talk about the share price and the market and all of that all day, but a company is a collection of people and that's what's going to get you everything, every objective. And the team was just incredible. And I'd never heard of this company. Just like you. I'd yeah, yeah, never yeah, heard yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And at GM, you know, I thought I knew all the startups because that was part of my role. Totally. And then I saw this factory, very early stages. It was like probably one-tenth of the stuff that's in there now. 
and I just saw where this company was going and uh, decided to to move to London three years ago and joined president of the, of the company. And since then, obviously, we've gone through the private investment. We've taken the company public and we've just been really building that momentum. And this year is a huge year for us, right? Because we start production. So this mm. is the, the integration point of all these technology yeah. layers that we've been putting together. But in brief, that's my story. <laughs> that's an amazing story. Yeah, Chocolate Lounge. How's Chocolate that? Lounge. <laughs> <laughs> and just uh, Dennis, what was his story? How did he end up starting this? He's, he's just an incredible, incredible person. He is um, extremely, extremely sharp. And he actually, when when... Arrival first started, it actually started by trying to take existing vehicles and shifting them over to being electric. Yeah. And then he realized, he's from the telecoms industry, he realized early that that wasn't going to cut it. Yeah, yeah. And then just, he goes very deep into subject. He's the best non-engineer engineer I've ever met in my life. Like right. he, He's basically an engineer. And so he started looking at, okay, how are we going to do this? Why do vehicles produce like this? And just kept asking all these whys until you basically hit a wall and basically answer to those whys like why are we doing this why why is it produced like this why is it like that why why are they paint shot and the answer ends up becoming because we've always done it like that yeah and he just wasn't satisfied with that so he started this journey attracted some really really impressive talent really early like the person who does composite materials wrote the book on material design for example folks from nasa tesla and started it really small and i was call it divine interventional luck but i randomly met him and we just started talking did you meet him at a chocolate at a conference lounge? in germany <laughs> no that would have been cool at a conference in germany actually right um and um yeah we just started talking and i was blown away by how sharp he was and of course i was intrigued because i'd never heard of the company but the more i looked into it and you know since then i've <laughs> i brought some folks over that i trust into the company as well and um you know we've gone from 300 people odd when i was there to over two and a half thousand but really i've just watched the technologies and the hurdles it has it's not easy you know this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for the auto industry but it takes a a lot of blood sweat and tears to get there you know and and for us in particular with the added innovation on the factories you know that's an extra bunch of technologies that have to be developed but it's probably the most unknown thing about arrival is just how much we've already done yeah, uh, we have autonomous mobile robots that we've developed in house that are not much bigger than a meter and a bit by a meter, and they can carry two tons of payload. They're about you know a foot off high, and they bring all of our parts into the technology cells where the mm. robotics lie to do the assembly. All of that's done in house, and it's incredible technology. It's a mobile robot that has no physical link to to each other, but you can literally arrange them virtually like five, six, ten, and then you want, and they coordinate their movement all with each other. Right. And so you just tell the robots, I, I want to take this from here to here, and it just takes care of the rest. We've done that in-house. The composites, I mean, it's wild when you see it. Yeah. When, when you've been to a paint shop, if you come to our factory and you see how small yeah. the line is, you know, probably only four or five times bigger than this room we're sitting in, and we go from a roll of fabric to a panel at the end of it, I mean, it's mind-blowing. It's right. so simple, but that takes a ton of effort, you know, and um, it's very hard to recreate. Do you come from an entrepreneurial family? Uh, no, not really, actually. I come from just like a very f- poor family, um, but worked really hard. Typical immigrant story. So we're in the UK first and then Australia. So that from a tiny island, 
I don't think anyone in my family has any idea of what I actually do. <laughs> <laughs> and you sort of go through the motions of like growing up in that, you don't really know who to like talk to because no one's gone through that story before. And what I really love about the US is the concept of mentors. Mm. And, you know, I've been saying that a lot to our team uh, at Arrival is like, you know, get yourself a mentor. Or, yes. You know, come speak to me. We have a very open door policy at Arrival. Anyone talk to anyone because that really helps you when you're going through things for the first time. Like I'm from a family that no one ever knew what a share scheme was, for example, even as an employee. So then you get this thing, you, you're like, what is this? Do I just sign it? I don't know who to talk to. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I don't know yeah, anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you're learning about the opportunity and also having to see if it's right for you all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, but I wouldn't change it for anything. It was, yeah. It's been an amazing journey and still more to go, but, but no, no, nothing like that. I just, that was just me. Yeah. My brother as well is like that. We were tinkering since we were kids and yeah. taking toys, breaking them up, trying to put them back together and got you. finding ways to have fun. Maybe that's that's what it is. When you've got, you know, sometimes when you're back in Mauritius, you just get a tie and you hit it with a stick, right? It's like, <laughs> I want to make a game out of this, right? So, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, it's part of that in there too, but no, yeah. no it was good. And how did you get from Mauritius to the UK to Australia? Yeah, so my, I was born in the UK actually. So my okay. family, okay. Uh, my parents immigrated to the UK uh, and then... When I was about 10, we moved to uh, Australia. So I did a lot of my studies there, did my university there. Is um, that, did your parents have work there? Is that what it Yeah, was? yeah. My parents were nurses for oh, I see. Uh, mentally disabled. And they got an opportunity in Australia and, and moved there. And my mom was always hilarious because her, her, whole, her whole goal in life was to make sure I went to university. That was it. <laughs> I wanted to play sports and do music, but she's like, you're going to university. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so typical after, immigrant story, typical immigrant yeah, story yeah, right? yeah, just yeah. do that and yes. everything will be fine yeah um, and so thanks to them yeah but yeah and it was good you know in australia to have a really good education system yeah. you know you get access to university otherwise i probably wouldn't be sitting here with yeah. you right now yeah, yeah and then yeah i don't know you know i've always dreamt to come to the valley and it and it manifested itself i mean it's been yeah i've been lucky yeah and you know that's one of the things i want to make sure that we do at arrival is you know that opportunity needs to be there so it's not just luck you know, and it's one of the reasons I'm at Arrival is the idea of making these sorts of vehicles equitable, mm. right? Because if you look at the situation we're in on the environment, it's no use just America and Europe going electric. And of course, that's our primary market. That's where we'll, we'll rapidly sort of seed the company and grow the company. But we need it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And we need to make vehicles that, you know, folks in Mauritius can go electric and across Asia and LATAM, South, you know, everywhere, everywhere. So there should be no limitation to this. And to do that, though, we have to make the vehicles affordable and we have to have a production system that can be there and help those communities. Because the reality of the industry now is that, let's take buses, right? We get them new, we run them to death, and then we send them over to developing nations and, yeah. you know, use them there. I've been on many long, long bus rides on those type of and buses. And they're very scary. <laughs> yes, they're very scary. <laughs> and so we need to change that, right? We yeah, need yeah. to transition the whole world. And we, we've got a timer on our back that hasn't stopped, even though obviously we've got coming out of pandemic and there's a war, but that pressure is still there. Yeah. That's not gone anywhere. Um, that's just waiting for us. So we've got a lot of work to do. And I think in our sector, I'm glad to see that it's not just the startups, but also the incumbents have finally realized that okay, yeah, we do need to pay attention to this. Yeah. Um, now, the question is, how fast can everybody move? And 
I think that's where companies like Arrival have an advantage. We're built with Agile in mind, right? We, that's just us by nature. So you said earlier that this is kind of like a pivotal year for you guys going back since founding in 2015, now 2022, going to production. What keeps you up at night? What's the thing where you're like, we can't screw that up? Well, you're assuming I sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so essentially right now, there's really great momentum because I think if you asked me at the start of the year, I would have said we need to get the vehicle certified. That's like mm -hmm. the step. So now we've sort of crossed that. So now there's the next hurdle in front of us, right? And so now it's really there are going to be unforeseen challenges. As hashtag we, production hell. Hashtag production hell. Yeah. As we start to put together um, the initial production run of the vehicles. And so I don't know what awaits us. Mm. So that keeps me up when there's obviously an unknown unknown there. But what I do know is what we can do is structure ourselves in a way that, you know, we have minimum bureaucracy to, to making a decision that teams are autonomous and can actually operate, you know, with freedom and that we are just extremely responsive to things. So, you know, if we have the right team and the right culture, those things will happen. They're going to happen anyway. I'm not going to yeah, sit here and tell you they're not going to happen because I, you know, I know that there's going to be challenges. So what can I do with that? I can only really focus on how do I structure and and create the right environment for us to knock through those challenges as rapidly and painlessly as possible. It won't be without pain, but as painless as possible. And so, you know, being well organized and thoughtful in, in how we operate, because if you're not, then those things will come up. And it's not the fact that they come up that, that hurts you. It's the fact that they come up and you don't know, you just have no idea how to operate in that environment and do anything about it. Um, so that's what we're focused on. But production hell, absolutely. I think once we cross that, there'll be another set of challenges. For sure. Right? And then it's going to be, okay, scaling is going to be a thing. No one's ever scaled microfactories before. Yeah. Right? So we're going to say, how do you turn 10 on at once? Well, that's a problem we have to solve. And the more we cross these off, the more confidence you get and the more proof points you've got. You know, someone sent me a great picture, one of the guys on our team, of a ton of work that has to be done ahead of you. And then it sort of zooms out and it shows a mountain of work that's already yeah, yeah, behind yeah, yeah, you, yeah. right? And I think that's the momentum that we're seeing. So yeah, that it's not going to be easy. No one's ever done a microfactory before. Production by itself is a nightmare. Yeah. And no one's ever done it this way. And it's high stakes, right? Because I was just writing a piece this week about the moment we're in in the market. Oh, yeah. Full-on meltdown. Yeah. I didn't look at your share price chart. I'm sure it's similar Don't look to... look at it. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm sure it's similar to Rivian's, et cetera. Like you've seen these companies just like... I was looking at some companies have lost 90 plus percent. Yeah. of their market value and investors are like we're going into recession all of these high flying ideas were really cool a year and a half ago but now we're not like you're on your own yeah. in other words it's about to get brutal and i think investors are about to get very yeah. draconian about the the companies they back the ideas they back yeah. so you kind of the margin for error feels like it's dramatically reduced yeah there's barely any actually quick shout out to the reddit crew we do read everything um, <laughs> I haven't been on there for a while. I've been busy. Dennis and yeah, I are both on there. Yeah. Um, and actually, we're going to do an AMA on the 26th. Because oh, so, cool. that's a really important part of our story is, is the retail investors as well. Mm. But to your point, you know, what we're seeing here is a cycle. And all history has shown that there's market upturns, market downturns. So what's important for us is hitting our milestones and riding through it, mm. right? Because the rest will take care of itself. I mean, I firmly believe that if we focus on, you know, 
the leading indicators of what leads to the share price. It's how's your business performing? What are your products like? What is, you know, you focus on those things. Yeah. The rest, it might take six months, might take 12 months, might take, who knows, five years, but it will sort itself out. Yeah. Because then the fundamentals, the kernel, the core of the organization is strong. And if that isn't strong, then, you know, you're going to manage the share price and you're going to make really short-term silly decisions around that. But if the core of the organization is strong, the rest will take care of itself. Having said that, it is a really tough time, right? So you've got sort of a bunch of market dynamics that weren't there 12 months ago, right? So you've got obviously potentially recession, inflation, you've got supply chain shortages, You've got um, you've got employees looking at their share, their RSUs being like employees looking at RSUs, going, "What happened to my value?" Yeah. You know, and so on and so forth. So you've got, and to your point, you've also got investors that are moving from risk to known stocks, right? But at the same time, what hasn't changed? We're in a market that is going to rapidly expand. The EV sector is not going anywhere. Yeah. As we said earlier, at least in the commercial vehicle segment, that decision's made. We have a lack of capacity. We're over-indexed on demand and there's, there's no vehicles there. So that's a really open market for someone to capture. We did a capital raise in the last year. Uh, so we closed the year with 900 million in cash. To date, the companies are only invested since 2015. For all this technology I'm telling you about and the vehicles that you'll see, et cetera, uh, outside, 1.2 billion. They're extremely capital efficient, yeah, yeah. right? When you compare it to yeah. what the typical industry is. So those are important just important background for mm-hmm. where the company is, even within the face of what is difficult. But there are also you know, access to capital, green funds. You have governments that are looking to bring a microfactory. That's unique for us, right? The microfactory governments are looking to partner with us on microfactories. We have an extremely strong set of partners, you know, UPS, Hyundai, Kia, Microsoft, et cetera, that we're doing work with. So we are not immune to any of these things, right? No one is. But I think we're well set up. Yeah. And, and sort of that's the key point. But it is an unknown how long will it take for the markets to cycle out of this. And so it is really important for us that, back to your point and what I was saying earlier, it's a critical year because you have to start production because that's a proof point that, okay, now you actually are a producer of vehicles and all these technologies that you've talked about have all come together to produce vehicles. Because I fundamentally believe when that's done, we're not like a typical, whether it's a startup or a OEM producing vehicles, we've shown that this whole new method works, right? And we're very confident because we've already started putting the chassis together and the cabin and the hoop structure and panels, et cetera. We've already, you know, been doing that, but it's to prove to the market, this works. And now it can produce vehicles and now we can ramp it and now we can scale it and now we can add more vehicle programs to it. So there'll be continuous milestones for us, but this is probably in our history, the most important one. Yeah, yeah. Starting production. So yeah, that's what the whole team is focused on. Well, I wish you luck. Thank you. It's, uh, it's a big mountain to climb. But as you say, there's, there's a whole mountain range behind you, but there's another one. Himalayas are behind us. We've got Everest in front of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Avinash. I want to thank you all for listening and for the ratings and for the reviews and for the little tips in the ACAST creator feature. Always, always, always just greatly appreciated. Please take a moment now. Stop what you're doing. Give a rating. Give a review. It really does help other people find the show. I'd really appreciate it. And that is it for me this week. We've written a piece in the paper for this weekend, uh, also on Arrival. So if you want to hear more or read more, rather, go check that out at thetimes.co.uk. And I will be back next week with another one. So until then, have a fabulous weekend. Be well. Talk soon.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 